0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City.
1: And this is Prashant Parmas Warren from Washington, D.C.
0: Thanks for joining me as usual, Prashant.
1: Good to be with you, Ankit.
0: Cool. Uh, we're doing this uh, in the middle of a snowstorm here on the East Coast, the fourth one we've had this, <laughs> this spring. It's supposed to be the, first, uh, the second day of spring, actually, but it doesn't look like we have um, much warmth to look forward to yet. But, and here's my segue, um, you know, who did see some warmth? over the weekend was uh, Australia and ASEAN. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so the Australians hosted um, the heads of state of ASEAN with the notable absence of the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte for a special summit. Um, we kind of saw echoes of the 2016 summit between the United States and ASEAN when the Obama administration brought the heads of, heads of state and government over to California. Um, this is something Australia's been planning f- um, for a while. Uh, both of us Heard Prime Minister Turnbull talk about it in his keynote speech at the uh, La Dialogue last year in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So this was a big moment here for um, the Southeast Asian grouping and Australia, which sees ASEAN as a priority. It's something that featured quite prominently in Australia's 2017 white paper on its foreign policy, uh, where it said that Southeast Asia frames Australia's northern approaches and is of profound significance for the country's future. Um, and so, accordingly, Australia is now trying to make a show of its commitment to ASEAN and and essentially trying to forge a variety of um, you know win win approaches here. Uh, you know, not to use the Chinese phrasing, but it is it is really uh, an attempt by the Australians to show ASEAN that um, Australia has something to offer uh, and can be a valuable partner. But Prashant, you know, you um, obviously are Southeast Asia editor. You watch this stuff a lot more closely than I do, and you wrote a great article about the significance of this summit. So, do you want to walk us through um what, in your view, is the primary kind of geopolitical takeaway from this australia asean uh, powwow over the weekend?
1: yeah, so i I think the 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 place to start there is to to emphasize the difference here between Southeast Asia and asean I mean uh, the enduring importance uh, of Australia's involvement in in Southeast Asia has kind of always been clear, right so it was, you know, always a, a very significant diplomatic security economic partner for the subregion. In fact, it was it was the oldest um, and, and the first uh, dialogue partner for ASEAN itself. Um, but uh, you know, I, I like the, the way that you sort of frame this in terms of what other countries like are doing, including the United States, which is, you know, I think the big takeaway is that this summit in terms of its significance is A recognition in the last few years by various players um, including the united states and australia that as they engage southeast asia as a sub-region they can't ignore um, asean's importance as a regional grouping Um, you know that's important for australia it's also important for the region and that's why you've seen these uh, series of moves right so you saw the elevation um, that the australians made and the and asean reciprocated which is the elevation to a strategic partnership back in 2014 and now you and then you had sort of uh, biannual uh, summits and this was sort of a, a development that followed right after and I think it reflects a recognition of the fact that ASEAN as a regional grouping really has um, become an important place for various actors to engage on strategic uh, and you know diplomatic economic questions and so that's I think the big takeaway for the summit, I, th- I think you saw, you know, some deliverables there in terms of, you know, the, the elevation uh, of uh, the relationship between Australia and Vietnam to a strategic partnership. You saw a meeting on counterterrorism where uh, Australia and ASEAN officially signed a uh, memorandum of understanding on the issue. But I think that's kind of the major takeaway there, um, which is, you know, the, Australia's recognition not only of Southeast Asia, but also of ASEAN, which I, I think it's important to emphasize for listeners, you know, hasn't always been clear. Uh, just like the United States um, has been a bit ambivalent about the role of multilateralism and the way it approaches Southeast Asia, uh, various Australian governments have been ambivalent uh, as well on that point. And I think there are, um, you know, there are still divisions uh, among the elite community in Australia about, you know, to what extent should Australia emphasize ASEAN. In terms of how it engages southeast asia
0: right so in a way it's um re-emphasizing uh asean's centrality which obviously asean welcomes wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. right now um let me let me you know kind of take a step back here and ask you about the broader geopolitical context in which all this is taking place so obviously this is a long-running trend you know you hinted at the 2014 strategic partnership declaration we've talked about the 2017 white paper but now um you know in march 2018 um this all of this engagement is occurring amid this mania about the Indo-Pacific strategy and the Indo-Pacific project. And Australia, notably, is a participant in the so-called quadrilateral as uh, one of the regional powers that will be leading this charge to preserve the rules-based order. And a big part of the Indo-Pacific strategy, as we saw at the November 2017 working level meeting between officials from the four countries, was connectivity. And there was a major connectivity initiative announced. I don't want to oversell it because you know we'll have to see how it actually turns out in reality, as so many of these things do. But Australia, I think, has been quite clear that they see uh, Southeast Asia as sort of the linchpin between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. You know, in the white paper, they again noted that Southeast Asia sits at a nexus of strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific. So there is this other dynamic here that I think um, also, you know, I think it's it's fair to say that Prime Minister Turnbull was also quite clear about that in his um, speech last year at Shangri-La, too. And on the flip side, you know, ASEAN has obviously taken an interest in connectivity too. Um, as early as uh, 2016, you know, they unveiled a master plan on ASEAN connectivity for 2025, which envisions a uh, seamlessly and comprehensively connected and integrated ASEAN. And you know, uh, there's been a lot of um, anxiety about how these so-called um, partners in the Quad can sort of compete with what China has to offer to the region. Mm-hmm. So. Um, What's your sense of this new connectivity initiative between ASEAN and Australia, and um, where do you, you know, wh- what are the real challenges and opportunities here for the ASEAN Australia relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that angle is a really important one that that you brought up because I think um, you know there's still a lot of specifics and um, meat that needs to be put on the bones of this so-called regional infrastructure initiative that the Australians have announced. Um, But the fact that they have announced something, uh, economically speaking, is important for these Southeast Asian countries. And to sort of elaborate on the comparison you made earlier, um, which I think is quite apt with the engagement that Southeast Asia has had with the United States, there's been very uh, sort of you know, a lot of challenges that these countries have been facing in terms of getting the Trump administration to unveil an economic piece of this so-called free and open Indo-Pacific vision that it has. Um, And the fact that the Australians are recognizing the fact that this regional infrastructure piece is important um, is a recognition of the fact that they understand what the Southeast Asian demands are and the fact that these Southeast Asian states are under pressure from China and its own sort of one belt one road uh, vision or belt and road initiative whatever you want to call it and they're looking for other actors that are willing to sort of chart out a positive economic vision for the relationship and it doesn't matter how vague that vision is or how basic it is the fact that they're actually talking about this is helpful. Um, And I do think, you know, the other angle of this that's really important is the fact that Australia is one of the few countries in the Asia-Pacific that's part of both the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the two major trade agreements that often get talked about. And I guess now the the TPP is rebranded under CPTPP following the U.S. withdrawal. And, you know, there's always been a case that's been made that Australia has a role to play on trade and investment based on the fact that it's a member of both these uh, agreements. And I do think that that sort of also attests to uh, its regional role. Um, But I think that's kind of a good segue for us to discuss maybe the the sort of broader regional significance of this ASEAN Australia Summit. I mean, one angle of this is the Indo-Pacific vision that we've been talking about strategically, but the other uh, component of this is the economic component, which you talked about rightly so, which is the CPTPP and and RCEP uh, angle, and RCEP is, you know, we're we're, we're still uh, as as always hoping that it will be completed by by the end of this year, but uh, you know, be interested to hear your thoughts about you know how we move forward on that economic piece.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the big the big takeaway I think is, um, you know, a year ago you and I were on this podcast talking about how Asia would react to the United States pulling back, um, or at least, you know, retreating into, I guess, what, you know, Barry Posen now calls a liberal hegemony that the United States has very much maintained its forward. Um, You know, I mean, we talked about Trump's kind of commitments to alliances and things in East Asia. But, you know, broadly speaking, you know, we still have troops in South Korea and Japan, the US Navy is conducting more FONOPs than ever. The, um, you know, naval operations continue apace, freedom of navigation continues to be an important component of US strategy in the region. But obviously, the big variable is that has changed from the Obama administration and many previous U.S. administrations is trade and how the administration thinks about that issue. And I think the best um, encapsulation of that changing U.S. approach was Trump's speech in uh, Da Nang, Vietnam, on the sidelines of the apex summit last year in November, um, but despite everything that's happened, I think it's it's really quite clear that the demand in Asia for free trade that was you know always apparent through the Obama administration, even the Bush administration, is very much still there, and it's and it's certainly uh, there in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, we talked about the ASEAN connectivity announcement in 2016, and you know right now with the rebranding of the TPP into the CPTPP, which was by the way signed earlier this month in March for our listeners. Um, You'll still have to go through ratification. Six countries have to ratify it before it can enter into force. And it's a watered down version of TPP, but it's still um, noticeably different than RCEP. It's a higher standards agreement still, um, even though it's not quite what the TPP was. About 22 important provisions have been frozen with the United States non-participation. So yeah, I mean you have these kind of countries that you can you know divvy up into baskets you know they're the rcep only countries i think you know it was good of you to bring up the fact that australia is part of both these agreements which gives it a really important role to play i think i completely agree with you on that point but you know you have the rcep only countries right so uh, on my list i have you know cambodia china india indonesia south korea laos myanmar philippines and thailand Uh, some of these countries are interested in eventually joining cptpp but right now they're um, only you know following the rcep process and remember cptpp requires membership an apex, so a country like India, for example, would have to jump through that hoop first in order to be eligible to uh, join the CPTPP. I really hate saying CPTPP; it's just a <laughs> terrible acronym. But I guess we have Justin Trudeau to thank for that. It's actually the Canadians who insisted uh, insisted on the uh, comprehensive and progressive addition. I'm just going to call it TPP for the podcast; it just feels better. Um, and then, uh, you know, the um, the CPTPP countries only. Uh, there I go again. Um, Canada, Mexico, Peru, and Chile. Right, so those countries are also um, negotiating a free trade agreement separately with Singapore. Um, so there's there's really you know all of these um, different sorts of agreements that are going on. I mean, also you know the Philippines recently ratified its FTA with the European Free Trade uh, Association. I think that was news a lot of people missed earlier this month. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia, meanwhile, has been, you know, conducting its own agreements across the Pacific. With Peru, it signed an FTA, and with Indonesia, it signed a Comprehensive and Economic Partnership Agreement. Um, So there's this real networking going on, and um, Australia, I think, is particularly well-positioned here. Um, And that kind of observation that you brought up um, about Canberra's role in both of these agreements, I think, really places it um, in an important position.
1: Yep, absolutely. I, I think the other thing on, on, on the security side that was interesting to note, and we've seen this um, pattern uh, recur actually with recent um, ASEAN and, and regional engagements, is that you know in the reporting that came out um, from the summit, despite the fact that we saw actually a very strong paragraph on the South China Sea and maritime security, yeah. most of the headlines were actually devoted to North Korea or <laughs> regional uh, infrastructure. Which, I mean, kind of feeds into the broader trend that we've been talking about on this podcast, um, which is, you know, the South China Sea, for all the action that's going on, and it still remains a really important issue for Southeast Asia and, and, and for the world. Um, you know in terms of relative prioritization to the security issues and what the media is paying attention to it really has fallen off the radar and it just raises another sort of element to the question that we've been raising on this podcast before which is you know with North Korea um, and this idea of you know TPP and regional infrastructure and one belt one road you know hogging a lot of the attention is the South China Sea kind of moving out the radar I think Australia and some of these other countries like the United States are are still trying to keep it on the agenda, but it it does seem at times that they're fighting a losing battle when it comes to the media.
0: I think so, and in a sense, it's an an acknowledgement of reality, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a degree of fatalism that's sunk in in all of these um, democratic capitals in the region, you know, uh, Tokyo, Canberra, New Delhi, Washington, uh, Singapore, there's just you know, I think a recognition of the new reality in the South China Sea. And I think a big component of that is also the way, you know, the Philippines has conducted itself. I think um, had things gone differently there and we had a continued kind of forward leaning Philippines that saw the value of the 2016 ruling and kept the pressure up on China, Uh, maybe things would be different. But right now, I mean, um, given the fact that among the claimants it's really only vietnam that continues to be forward-leaning but also you know vietnam had that incident with the um the spanish yep. company uh repsol and you know they stood down as well i mean china's really you know uh, from a realist perspective uh, china's been quite successful in changing the facts on the water and it it really hasn't mattered at the end of the day that paycom is conducting more FONOPS ops now than it ever did during the obama administration and these FONOPS ops are happening quietly without much press as a lot of proponents thought they needed to be in the, in the beginning. Um, so there is this fatalism um, that sunk it. But you're also right. I mean, you know, a lot of this is kind of based in media narratives. Like right now, a headline, you know, we both write headlines, a headline with um, North Korea in the title will tend to uh, probably, you know, draw more eyeballs. And the South China Sea is simply not a hot issue until, you know, um, we get some new satellite imagery of China and placing new kind of close in weapon systems or radars or whatever new technology they're bringing to the uh, artificial island facilities in the Spratleys. Um so yeah, I think I think there's a recognition of of the fatalism, but I mean, look, I mean you you did point out that the joint statement uh, at the special summit was quite strong, you know, they opposed the militarization of features and um even though, you know, it wasn't in the context of the South China Sea directly, the I believe the South China Sea appears Towards the end of that paragraph, when they talk about the declaration, um, the declaration on the conduct of parties in the South China Sea, um, and the code of conduct, um, but but yeah, it, I, I think it's I think it's still you know a um, a significant uh, takeaway. And actually, uh, you know, can you talk a bit about what effect you think um, Rodrigo Duterte's no show ended up having on the summit, if if any?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's two parts to that. I think the first one is the fact that, I mean, you know, for Australian bureaucrats who spent a lot of time organizing the, these summits, it, it didn't help that uh, Duterte's no-show kind of stole the headlines uh, right right before the meeting. I mean, it really dominated the media narrative. And the fact that the Australians had... You know, one of their side engagements focused on counterterrorism. The other one was, was on business. Yeah. Um, and the Philippines was really the sort of main case study um, in that, in terms of Australia's important role in, in that cooperation. It, it really didn't help in terms of the messaging. Um, you know, that being said, you know, I, I think that Duterte, and, and this is sort of the, the, the sort of um, two-sided coin when it comes to Duterte, I mean... Part of it is the fact that there's a lot of strategic cooperation that's been going on despite the challenges that he's posed for mm-hmm. um, Australia, for Japan, for the United States. But on the other hand, we can't ignore the fact that um, he's fit into this narrative that um, Southeast Asia has really regressed when it's come to freedom and democracy, despite the fact that Duterte is a democratically um, elected leader. Um, you know, the fact is. Even though the the sort of elite media narrative was focused on the fact that, you know, the the summit had several deliverables, including on on education, on terrorism, you know, the the Vietnam-Australia strategic partnership. The fact is there were protests that were going on in Australia by hundreds of people protesting authoritarian leaders uh, actually being present at the meeting, like, you know, Cambodian leader Hun Sen and and Aung San Suu Kyi as well in Myanmar, um, given the Rohingya issue that we've discussed on this podcast previously. Um, So I think it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, In terms of Duterte and multilateralism more generally, I mean, I think it's important to note the fact that um, he fits into a broader pattern of uh, ASEAN leaders, a type of ASEAN leader that you know, is very selective about multilateral engagements that, you know, he or she attends. And, you know, the other example is President Jokowi of Indonesia. I mean, he has um, not attended several uh, regional meetings um, as well. He attended this one, um, but he has missed several in the past. And it does sort of raise this question uh, more broadly for Southeast Asia about, you know, the fact that you have these new leaders who are more populous in nature and they, sort of adhere to domestic considerations, but they're not necessarily foreign policy uh, minded, unlike, let's say, you know, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak, which, Mm -hmm. you know, for all his troubles, I mean, is somebody who thinks deeply and cares deeply um, about foreign policy. And and Singapore Prime Minister uh, Lee Sen Long, who, you know, whose country is, basically the chair of ASEAN this year. So there is that, you know, interesting storyline there about where Southeast Asia is in terms of its leadership and democratic uh, development.
0: Yeah. And, you know, leaders come and go. I mean, uh, you know, we have to remember, you know, Indonesia under SBY, very different leader, very interested Mm -hmm. in international issues, Philippines under Aquino, Um, obviously, you know, things could change, but right now there is this, you know, weird confluence of this kind of illiberal liberal authoritarian turn in Southeast Asia at the same time that the United States is effectively turning towards illiberal hegemony. You know, abandoning free trade, abandoning support for human rights and democracy promotion abroad. So, I mean, weirdly, it's kind of that sort of confluence has actually kept things maybe a little bit better than it could be otherwise, right? I mean, if we had a different administration, say in the U. S. that would you know make a big deal about human rights or the Rohingya situation, um, then you know that could. Again, strain these kinds of engagements that are that are happening. Nonetheless, I mean, not that those issues aren't important, and you know, a normative issues shouldn't be a component of um, of real politics in this region. But I think the fact that you know we just are in a time where none of these leaders particularly seem to like hearing about that, and none of the leaders, meanwhile, or at least you know, the U.S. president doesn't like talking about those issues, um, gives it a uh, a oddly, I guess, um, oddly useful kind of symmetry for them.
1: Yep, absolutely, and I, I think you know it's important. We, we've talked about the Quad on this podcast before, and th- these instances do actually bring to the fore for all the sort of you know the the sort of narrative of, of common interests that we talk about and common values among the Quad members. I mean, there are some real differences about where they are in terms of their outlooks and their policies, and I think you know as you correctly pointed out. With the United States now, whether it's on uh, free trade for for the United States or whether uh, Australia and Japan approach democracy and human rights the same way the United States does, some of these are older issues, but there are nonetheless issues that are tugging at this broader narrative that we're seeing, you know, advertised about strategic convergence uh, in the Quad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, well, Prashant, I think um, that about caps our conversation for today. What do you think?
1: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Cool. Um, great. So for our listeners, thanks for listening as always. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. And if you're a subscriber but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes or on Google Play, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.